Thanks for pressing play. In 2020, Amazon.com became an essential service in America. The company is now worth $1.6 trillion and, frankly, has become one of the greatest B2B companies in history, the category king in e-commerce, and Amazon Web Services is the fastest-growing B2B tech company ever. And so it's shocking. One company is dominating on the consumer side and on the enterprise technology side in a way that we've never seen one company do before. And let's just drill into AWS, Amazon Web Services, for a second. Uh, They did 32% revenue growth in the first quarter of 2021, giving the cloud computing category king a $54 billion-plus annual run rate. And AWS is growing at 30% year over year and has a backlog of future contracts totaling $53 billion. Now, to put all of that in context around AWS, if, if my math is right, and uh, if you know me, you know that grade three math was the hardest 12 years of my life. Um, but if my math is right, Salesforce.com, by way of comparison, is a $21 billion annual revenue company. And so, given that, AWS added more than half of a sales force last year alone. It's stunning. Our guest today is the expert on the Amazon way. As a matter of fact, he wrote the book. My buddy John Rossman uh, has become an extraordinarily sought-after author, speaker, and thinker in business because he is uh, teaching all of us how to be like Amazon. In his new book, he breaks down the 14 leadership principles that Amazon is guided by. And on this episode, we dig into all of it. So if you care about building legendary category creating business, you'll love everything about this conversation and about John's new book. Also pay attention to his thoughts on what it means to have a bias for action. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And uh, our listeners have made us the number one real dialogue podcast for business people who want to go deep with some of the most legendary minds of our time. Our friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of big data. Splunk brings data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit Splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E today. And our friends at Oracle NetSuite are the number one complete business system in the cloud. Check out NetSuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's NetSuite.com slash different. And our good friends at Malibu Milk are the category queens in the exploding organic flax milk category. And as you know, flax is a legendary superfood. And Malibu Milk tastes pretty legendary. <laughs> so check out Malibu Milk with a Y.com today. That's Malibu Milk with a Y.com. Now, hey ho, let's go. So, John, it's great to see you again. Thanks, Christopher. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me back again. Are you kidding? I love your work. I love that you've been updating your spectacular book and uh, teaching us all the 
the secrets of how Amazon became Amazon and how we can too. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's something that yeah, I really emphasize. I get a lot of questions and commentary about, you know, Amazon and, and all the, 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 I would call it kind of negative narrative that's going on around them and, and some of which is deserved, some of which isn't or whatever, but I, it's like, Hey, if complaining is your strategy, good luck to you, you know, and everything, right? Like I'm about taking control of what we can take control of as business leaders and, and going on the offense and all of my work with my clients, with my speaking, with these books, it's about what we can learn from a company like Amazon to incorporate into our culture, into our leadership approaches, and into how we compete. And so that's that's kind of the fair way that I that I play. And I just love the notion of like you know we got to compete differently, and that's that's that is what Amazon is teaching us, and that's what I try to take away and and give to my readers. I love what you said there. Compete differently. Yes. And uh, I was talking recently with our mutual friend, uh, Jason Child at Splunk, and he said something to me that I'd never hadn't heard somebody put in quite this way. Uh, He said that in the last year or so, AWS has grown by 14 billion. And uh, that that's roughly uh, adding a Salesforce.com to their business. (laughs) I mean, the the last quarter results were 44% year over year, right? Combined AWS retail, all of their business are 44%. They're a, they're a, you know, roughly $400 billion uh, revenue organization growing at 44%. We've never really seen those types of dynamics. I don't think before uh, and everything it's going to, it's going to, I think, challenge them in just, what traditional management science means, like management techniques means for an organization that's that large. That's part of why these leadership principles are so key to them and why I wrote a suggestion up front in the, in the, in the book. And it really came from a place of, of thinking about the next 25 years from Amazon is really kind of where the suggestion came from for in addition to the leadership principles. Yeah, you've done a great job as usual. And one of the things that I've thought a lot about, you know, obviously since the pandemic is companies like Amazon, Amazon probably being the number one non-government entity have become an essential service in the United States. If we think about the pandemic and we think about how much most of us relied on Amazon, you know, when people bitch about the company for one reason or another, and maybe there's legitimate things to, uh, you know, but this is a private company started by an entrepreneur who, how old is the company now, John? Uh, 25 years, roughly 25 years. Roughly 25 years. And in 25 years becomes an essential service, not unlike the internet itself, or electricity, or do you think I'm over my skis on that assessment? No, I, I, th- I think uh, you touch on several really important points there. The, the, the first is it doesn't get highlighted enough that I think Amazon and Jeff Bezos is the American story, right? Here is a guy who bet on himself, pushed all of his chips into the center, risked a great career, a great job, uh, left a yearly bonus behind, left D.E. Shaw, moved to Seattle, and 
it doesn't happen right away, right? Like, like it's not like, oh, it's this success. It takes literally two decades for them to really become the juggernaut that we know of, right? And I was at Amazon for four years, early 2002 through late 2005. The stock was essentially flat all four of those years and it was flat for about four years after I left. Jeff believed and acted exactly the same then as he does now. And that's where these leadership principles, the fire of where these things were born from wasn't in good times. It was in bad times, times when people weren't believing us. The stock was down. We were being doubted. We weren't getting all the business results uh, that we wanted. But he acted exactly like he acts today. He's got a few more resources at hand now, right? And so I think that changes the dynamics, but what he believed in and what he preached and, and the way he acted, like it was always about, hey, worry about the things we're in control of. Don't worry about the things that we're not in control of. And those are the leadership lessons I learned so much from and his consistency in beliefs, like them or not, at least they're consistent and they're super well articulated. And so I think that that is a big story that that doesn't get told um, enough. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. And the other thing people forget, of course, was we had a pretty serious uh, recession in uh, 2001. There was a meaningful stock market crash. And the other thing people forget is that recession was often called the dot-com bust. And it took many, many internet companies out and it took many internet retailers, aka e-commerce companies out, but didn't take out Amazon. Yeah, some of the, you know, famous headlines for Amazon was, you know, Amazon.bomb, Amazon.toast, Amazon.org, because of course we didn't know how to make money, right? You know, and everything, right? And those are the naysayers that, you know, help help motivate you. And I think that that's you know, to some degree, that's where Amazon comes from. You have to remember, they come from this entrepreneurial company that was was told they weren't going to succeed. They were doubted forever. And while that edge can be helpful for them today, I think that's part of the challenge for the next 25 years. I think they need to leave some of that edge behind. And it kind of goes into the suggestion that I have for them because they're a behem- their their infrastructure is as as you mentioned right it's a utility um, it's close to an essential uh, service in fact I think the Canadian government said thank you to them I think some of the actual Democratic senators uh, said thank you to Amazon early in the pandemic and you know the thing I love about that the kind of call it the first quarter of the pandemic right it's the first three months of last year right. Um, the two actions that I remember Bezos doing was, A, he said he is personally fully focused on Amazon's pandemic response. Not like, hey, I'm paying attention to it. You know, I'm, I'm spending more time on this. Like, no, no, no. He was fully focused on it, which sent a message to everybody at Amazon. Guess what? You are also fully focused on this. And they said they turned off all the attention on anything that wasn't about delivering relative to the pandemic. And they they were able to, with a little bit of creaking and a little bit of turning, they quickly amped up into categories 
that you know Americans needed right away, right? All you remember the days of like the grocery store shelves being barren and everything, right? Amazon was the answer. Uh, the run to run on toilet paper for fuck's sake. <laughs> so many of us and, and and food and things like that. And so they did an amazing job at quickly shifting. And the thing I always point out to everybody is like it didn't happen by accident, right? It, it's just not like. Oh yeah, but they have these muscles in their in their DNA in the way that they're built about leadership, communication, and accountability. And it's that combination of, for a leader like Bezos to say, "We are fully fo focused on the pandemic," and then a culture that goes, "It's my job to interpret messages like that and be accountable for the things that I am accountable for and align them." relative to that. And I think that that's the interesting thing about a non-bureaucratic uh, culture is, is you have to create an organization that both communicates extremely crispy, crisply, has metrics and, and um, SLAs and, and architectures that help align to avoid that bureaucracy, but then individual leaders who go, I'm not waiting for somebody else to interpret this message for me. I can interpret a message like that, and we shift my business, my team relative to that mission. It's it's spectacular what what has transpired, and I, I was just double checking. Are these, do these numbers sound right to you? That since the beginning of the pandemic, um, the company has hired over four hundred twenty five thousand people. It, it it does. I think they 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 they're at around one point three million. I I think that last year it, for a year, I think they may have said in their annual shareholder letter that they hired five hundred thousand. So so right in More. that neighborhood. Obviously, a lot of those in fulfillment, right? So working in sure. fulfillment centers as last mile delivery agents in customer service centers uh, and everything. So a lot of them in kind of the, op the, the, the heart of the operations within the organization as they scaled up being able to deliver. And I'm not a historian, John, but you and I have been around a while and we've studied business a little. Uh, has there ever been a company in history that hired half a million people in less than a year? I don't know of one. And, and you know, those were important jobs for, you know, those people and their families and those communities and everything. And if, if you happen to read, you know, Bezos' last shareholder letter, it came out a couple of weeks ago and been paying attention to a lot of the the you know naysayer uh, discussions out there, right? Amazon recently had a union vote at one of their facilities. I think it's Bessemer in Georgia. Um, I believe the vote tally was ninety three percent positive uh, to stay non unionized and everything. Right? These are hard jobs, you know, and everything. Right? Like nobody should try to candy coat any of that. But I think it does speak to you know, overall in relative terms, these are quality jobs for individuals, for their families and for the communities. Well, and this is the other part that I don't think people get. So we hear a lot, of course, in our industry, the tech industry about scaling and get big fast and all that. And so I do want to get into like, how the hell do you scale like that? If to your point on, on, on Bezos making it sort of the focus of the company, if he doesn't, who knows what happens to the United States of America and Canada and other countries where they're prominent. And, and the other thing is, at a time when our economy was in a free fall, people were losing jobs and houses and all of this stuff. 
And as tough as a lot of those jobs are, and they're tough jobs, they're, they're more manual labor type jobs. Uh, but the reality is, to your point, when you hire 500,000 people, you probably are affecting at least 4x that number. Absolutely. I mean, unemployment went from an all-time low of, you know, essentially three and a half percent, effectively full employment to 10 percent, I think, early in the pandemic. And I think, you know, companies like Amazon just played a critical role in, you know, both providing essential service, but also just, you know, helping to jumpstart, you know, the economy coming out, uh, coming through the pandemic. And so your chapter nine, you know, I love the title. It's a simple, clear title, Bias for Action. And if Amazon isn't an example of a company that took radical action over the last, uh, you know, plus or minus 18 months now, I, I don't know who is. And so can you can we pop the hood on Bias for Action for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the, the, the ninth leadership uh, principle of Amazon. And the explanation reads like this, right? Speed matters in business. Many decisions and actions are reversible and do not need extensive study. We value calculated risk-taking. So there's a lot packed kind of into that explanation of bias for action. And I think the, the important aspects of that are like, how do we make decisions, right? And, and we talked about how, you know, Bezos talks like, I am fully focused on the pandemic and leaders at Amazon go, okay, guess I am too. And I'm doing everything I can. They're not waiting for that, right? And so that, that mindset of how we make decisions is really important. I'm always interested in the mechanisms, right? How do you take a concept and actually practice it, put it into action, make it a habit? make a process out of it, right? And so Amazon has a simple model around decision-making and that model is called one-way doors versus two-way doors. One-way door decisions are decisions that are impossible to come back from. So things like an acquisition or you know some major um, risk or incident, those are decisions that um, you have to bring to the top, you have to have thoughtful, deliberate, probably multiple multiple cycles on relative to making the decision because you can't come back from the decision. Two-way door decision is one that can be made. And if we're wrong, we can come back from it, you know, and everything, right? Most decisions are actually two-way door decisions, but the natural inclination is, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna get other people's input. I'm gonna ask for permission. I'm gonna slow it down, make this into a bigger deal than it is. And guess what we do as an organization? We slow down and we shift accountability. And so the trick is really figuring out what's the decision that needs to be made? Can we break it down into smaller decisions? Who is the decision owner for this particular element? How do we bring the essential people in, have the right debate, led with customer obsession, led with data, but then respect the rights of the decision maker, which gets to another Amazon leadership principle, which is disagree but commit. So we've had this, this, this discussion, we respect the rights of the decision maker when they announce their decision, we all work to make it uh, successful, right? And, and so it's the combination of these things together, right? It's not one leadership principle. It's not one technique. It's, 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 a, it's a playbook, right, where, where you have to get all these pieces 
uh, kind of working together, but that allows them to be for such a massive organization, relatively non-bureaucratic, have relative great accountability at the business leader who's closest to the customer and closest to the business. So you, uh, you touched on so much great stuff there. Let's, if we could, uh, John, let's talk about ownership, the concept of ownership and the concept of disagree and commit. Now, a lot of companies say such and such leader, such and such executive owns this decision. And in point of fact, it's complete bullshit. And a lot of companies are purposely highly matrixed so that almost like a government agency, no one person can make very much big happen because they're afraid they'll make a big dumb thing happen, right? And so on purpose, they're in quicksand. And so how is it that there can be as our former president, uh, George W. So, so famously said, one decider. <laughs> what a great quote. Well, it, it, it's not simple and it's not perfect, right? But the components that go into that are, I would say, first is Amazon believes in small teams. And so they try to break the organization up into small teams. One type of small team is a two pizza team at Amazon, right? A two pizza team owns the engineering, product management, the development and the adoption of core capabilities. These could be things that impact the customer like the shopping cart service or the payment service or the promotion service or core internal functions like revenue forecasting or item intake, right? A small team owns that. And so when you have a small team owning a well-defined component, like a Lego block, right? One of the benefits of that is you can go, oh, we've got an issue that's impacting the item intake process. You know, by definition, who the decision maker is for decisions that impact the item intake process. I think the other mechanism they do very well is around metrics and, and, and a hierarchy of metrics and data in the organization. And they these metrics tend to have an owner, right? It doesn't mean that that person owns every aspect of things that go into that metric. It means that they're responsible in the organization for the health of that metric, right? Making sure it's going up and to the right, that if the SLA is having challenges that they're digging into what the root causes of it. And so when you have small teams and metrics that have a name to them, that helps you quickly get to both what's the issue, what's the decision that needs to be made, as well as who might the decision maker be. And, you know, all of this takes wisdom, right? Like it's, it's not perfect, it's messy. Um, but when you have these, these principles along with these design elements like small teams and metrics, then that's what allows the, the organism, the organization to be better at what's the decision that needs to be made, who's the decision maker and announcing their decisions. That's awesome, thank you. And uh, you, you mentioned how all these sort of principles connect, right? Sort of it's kind of a Rubik's cube thing or something like that, where prior to what you just said about the teams, you said break the problem down, right? So if we have a very big problem, you know, let's take something that every company is always working on. How do we increase revenue, right? You say, okay, well, let's think about the, the, let's call it for lack of a better term, the revenue cycle from the very beginning through to the end. You can break that down. You can say, well, you know, marketing is responsible for these pieces and there's different 
parts of marketing and then there's sales and, you know, da, 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 da. And so is that what happens? They, they'll, Amazon will take a big initiative or a big project or a big problem and break it down into a handful of pieces, have two pizza teams with an owner look at components of the bigger problem. Everybody makes their best change, their best recommendation. And Bob's your uncle? It depends on the circumstance. If it's a new idea or a, a new service or feature, what they actually do is they have this concept called single threaded leadership, right? And what they do is they take a very senior person and they say, your only job is figure out how to get us launched or scaled in this initiative, right? And so that helps cut across all of those functions for a relatively new or small business but it brings senior leadership to it, right? And so this person has sway within the organization. They can get things done across other teams and they have essentially signing authority for making fast decisions. So that's in a smaller business. In a, in a bigger business, well then you do have organizations like that, but it's really the metrics that lead the way to both you know, where's the quote unquote problem and where's the unlock relative to that problem, right? It could be, in forecasting, it could be in demand generation, it could be in fulfillment, it could be in price and promotion, but it's really through the data that you come to a better insight. But, but even there in those big businesses, what they'll do is they'll have a category owner, somebody who essentially owns that business, but they're matrixed across all of those, across all of those functions. So you still end up with the essence of single-threaded leadership by having a relatively senior person who's fully focused, not partially focused, fully focused on trying to figure out the problem that you're talking about, which might be a, hey, revenue is down, why situation. Thank you for that. Now, another sort of curiosity in all of this is uh, my friend uh, and co-author Kevin Maney and his partner, Mike Damphouse, they have this thing that they call the adjacent possible when they're doing category design work. And I, I really like the idea and the thinking. And I think when, for example, Amazon goes out and buys Whole Foods, there's a lot of people who goes, what, what the fuck was that, Right. That to me feels like an adjacent possible, but can you maybe pop the hood on what might have, you know, if, if you and I were flies on the wall in those early meetings about whether we should do that or shouldn't, why, why would Amazon make a move like that? Well, I, I really think it comes down to the first principle, which is customer obsession. And a lot of people interpret customer obsession to be like, hey, you know, we have to hustle on every single transaction and, and, and make it great. And yes, that, that is true. But more importantly, customer obsession gives you the permission to really understand your customer and look broader than just how you serve them today, right? And that, and what does that thinking do? Well, that takes you into adjacencies, right? And so if you think about your core customer, how can you not come to, you know, food as being an essential there? And then as Amazon has seen the, that the mix, the modalities of how we serve our customers, we cannot be fixed or stagnant in our modalities, right? It used to be we only do home delivery. And then it, then it evolved to, oh, we'll do this little thing called lockers and we'll, be, we'll let you designate to a locker. And then they said, hey, we need retail stores. And those retail stores, ah, they're nice for showing products. But really what they're really good at is having customers order things, have them delivered to those retail stores, and then they'll come and deliver them. 
Well, Whole, Whole Foods not only solved a couple holes from it, it gives them a, a plank on which they can can build new use cases to, right? I think there's 480 Whole Foods stores when, when, when Amazon bought them. Guess what? All of a sudden, I have 480, not just grocery stores and merchandising expertise for great produce, but now I have 480 return locations. I have 480 locations where somebody could add a book onto their order and it gets you know inserted with their, their grocery delivery. I have 480 order online pickup at store locations that were highly needed for the pandemic when people were scared about going into the store, right? And so I think they, they look at those adjacencies and then they look at where the combination could go to new use cases and the next set of adjacencies even beyond there. And I, and I haven't even mentioned the potential for pharmacy, the pharmacy combination and Whole Foods and everything, right? And so I think it's really around customer obsession and, you know, this, this mindset that, you know, if we stand still in how we serve the customer, that's the beginning of the end. And, you know, they have this ethos around a day one organization, right? And a day one organization is one that's always fighting for the future and trying to invent the future versus being satisfied with the status quo. That's what a day two company is. And so I think it's this, this, this combination kind of paranoia, this belief that if you stand still, you start becoming the establishment in the day two organization and they use customer obsession as really like the permission slip. Like, yeah, of course I can go do that, you know, and everything, right? I have customer obsession. Yes, it's fascinating. And the thing that's really interesting, so of course with Whole Foods, it's a premium grocery store in higher end neighborhoods, right? And to your point on sort of putting things together and to this point around adjacent possibilities, just the integration of Amazon Prime to the shopping experience at Whole Foods changes a lot. And and it happened with speed when that acquisition happened and everything, right? Like they did not uh, wait around for that to happen. And so, yeah, it's this combination of factors that really starts creating the type of value that you see them being rewarded for from a, from a, enterprise value standpoint. There's also a connection here that I don't know a lot of people have made that I want to bounce off you to see if it seems right to you. So I personally know three sets of entrepreneurs who either got their start with Whole Foods or Whole Foods made a material difference in the beginning. Locally here in Santa Cruz, the two guys started this wonderful coffee company called Verve Coffee, kind of one of the craft premium coffees on the West Coast. And uh, the local Whole Foods were very, very welcoming, and that got them into a retail business. And I think they're much more uh, widely distributed in Whole Foods now than just locally in Santa Cruz, and that's opened up other retailers for them. Another one is uh, my friend Kara Golden, the founder of Hint Water, and she tells a story where, uh, for health reasons and so forth, she's trying to consume more water. She's sort of getting sick of just plain water. She starts adding um, uh, real fruit and she says, you know, maybe this is an idea. And so one day she's in Whole Foods and there's a guy stocking the shelves. And she literally says to him, hey, if I wanted to get a product in here, what do you think I should do? Well, the guy sets her up. And now she's this legendary entrepreneur and the company's on fire. She's pioneered a new category. 
I recently met Brittany Fuse, who's the founder of uh, the first in the organic flax milk category. She's the founder of Malibu Milk. And she told me, John, almost the exact identical story that Kara told me. And I was like, I felt a little uh, uh, Yogi Bearish here. Am I having a deja vu all over again? And sure enough, uh, Brittany had exactly the same story. And Malibu Milk is on fire. And uh, she started the company knowing that Whole Foods was her first company or her first customer. Now, here's the triangulation I see. So first of all, I think that's wonderful. And anybody who loves innovation, anybody who loves entrepreneurship, anybody who loves new categories, if you don't love that, you're insane. But here's the thing I noticed. You started the marketplace business. And the marketplace business allows companies big and small. If you and I are a two-man band selling I don't know what, or all the way up to many of the biggest brands in the world, we're on the Amazon marketplace. And so is there an ethos of sort of receptivity to third parties, to innovation, to new entrepreneurship, new products. I'm curious, tell me about that. And am I connecting dots you think I should? That's really interesting. I had never saw that pattern relative to Whole Foods. And I think it's partially why Whole Foods has been an excellent acquisition for Amazon, because it not only was a great adjacency for the customers, but from a culture standpoint, they were on a mission that was centered around the customer and around health and the willingness to try new things to fulfill that mission, right? And so it, it kind of starts with that alignment. But I think the other thing is that Amazon's always talked about platform businesses and a platform business is a business that allows others to leverage your capabilities to try new things, right? And so the marketplace business is a platform business. AWS is a platform business. And what you're, the stories you're telling me is really Whole Foods acting as a platform business for a brand to launch and to reach customers that make sense for the customer base, for Whole Foods, and for this small, nimble brand to be able to try. And so I think that there is definitely a kindred of, of, of alignment there about, you know, we can't do it all, right? And one of the funny strategies at Amazon was a strategy called OPW, which stands for other people's work. And OPW is a way of essentially outsourcing stuff, like both work and innovation that you can't possibly get to. And so in some ways, by creating a culture that allows small brands to come in, Whole Foods is outsourced, you know, product design, launching new categories, uh, and let others help do that job for them. And so they're they're definitely gaining through that ethos. It's a fascinating uh, way of thinking. It's uh, you can't can you imagine? Not to pick on them, but let's pick on them. Safeway. They're not a bad company, but they're not a great company. They're not. Nobody goes. Oh, I fucking love Safeway. Can you imagine asking? Uh, somebody in a local Safeway store say, hey, I, I got an idea for organic flax milk. And before you know it, if I'm not, if I'm remembering Brittany's story right, she's talking to the, because she's in, uh, obviously she's in Southern California in the LA Malibu area. She's talking to the head of purchasing for new products for Whole Foods in Southern California. She doesn't even have a company yet. She's making shit in her kitchen. 
and and they agree to be her first customer. And she's like, oh, now I got to figure out how to build a business. And I think almost the same thing happened with uh, with um, Kara Golden at Hint Water. And so this incredible thing where, and of course, if you're a digital business and you want to be on the marketplace, you're on the marketplace. And so it's transformative for entrepreneurs knowing that to your point, there's this platform and there's this receptivity. And in the case of some entrepreneurs, they're your first customer. We're sitting here with an order. If you can deliver what you just shared with me, I'm going to buy it from you. A lot of entrepreneurs ne- never had that. Well, it, you know, this conversation kind of takes us whole whole circle in that, you know, you started off by talking about bias for action, right? And bias for action talks about we value calculated risk-taking and speed matters in business. And the story is all about an individual at Whole Foods who acted like an owner, understood they could make decisions, that speed matters. And yeah, this is a little bit of a bet. I don't know exactly how it's going to go, but we can try something and then proceed to scale it. And so it really was a great story of a number of these principles. Again, they, they're, they're, they're not in isolation, right? But it really does go back to a bias for action. Somebody at Whole Foods had a bias for action. They valued speed. They valued calculated risk-taking. Now, the interesting thing is, number seven, insist on the highest standards. Some might hear the conversation you and I just had and go, well, how can you be insisting on the highest standards when you take a flyer like that? Or to the point you made earlier, yes, is Amazon a highly data-driven organization? Absolutely. Um, And... If an executive there comes up or anybody comes up with an idea for something new and speed is required and maybe we have some data and maybe we don't, we're willing to make that calculated, hopefully two door risk. And so some of these things sound like they're in conflict with each other. I want highest standards, but I'm taking a flyer on this new product. How does that dynamic tension work? Well, first, there is tension, right? And it really takes wisdom, right? You have to use the right leadership principle at the right moment. So insist on the highest standards is mostly applied for those types of outcomes or processes that we need to be world-class at, right? Um, and, and, And so those are about operational excellence. And you have to have high standards relative to you know, those things that have to have a, you know, four nines SLA, we have to get to a four nines SLA. But it also can be applied to, to the story of letting a small brand launch in this way, which is if you can defend why I let this brand try this and how I went about it, that's having high standards. And so a good leader at Amazon would apply that principle with, did you think through this thoroughly? What was what was your thought process going into it? And if it was just like, oh, well, yeah, she was my neighbor. And so, you know, I let her do it. Well, that's not having high standards. But if it was because I think our customers would love this product and this person had had the background that I thought could be successful and had a plan relative to it, and we launched it in a small way and we tested it out, well, then that's sound business making, right? And that and that's how you would apply that standard correctly in that type of instance. Now, I also want to bounce another thought off you. Um, my uh, one of my partners in Category Pirates, Eddie Yoon, who's the c- category guru to the Fortune 100. 
he made a fascinating comment to me that I'd never thought about with Amazon. He said, you know what Amazon's really great at? Taking costs and turning them into revenue. And so Amazon Prime is that. We pay to be Amazon customers, right? So we upfront pay for essentially shipping, right? And so I'm sure other Scooby snacks, but it's, and so we pay to get free shipping. That's you, Amazon made us say that. It sounds insane, right? So they take this cost called shipping and they normalize it and bang Amazon Prime. And then they throw in some Scooby snacks. And of course, the biggest one of all was Amazon builds one of the biggest data centers in the world. It's costing a zillion dollars a year to run this thing. And uh, somebody opens a bottle of whiskey and maybe a bag of Mary Jane and goes, hey, what if we rented our infrastructure and now Amazon is literally the most dominant B2C company in the world. And if there's a more dominant B2B uh, technology business, I'd like to know what it is. And so uh, tell me about that kind of thinking. And, and the, the third example, those two are great, is really their fulfillment and logistics organization, right? They have a manifestation of that called FBA, Fulfillment by Amazon, where third parties pay to not just be able to put their products in Amazon fulfillment centers, but to get access to their negotiated carrier rates, to get access to all their algorithms, which predict and order where to place inventory based on historical demand signals. And so that, that it really is that pattern of how do we take a fixed cost, create a valuable service for somebody else. It allows us to both scale that cost but also to be able to create new features to really as an R&D driver for this new type of customer. Maybe it's a developer, maybe it's somebody who needs to fulfill orders. And all that does is it makes you better, right? One of the, the discussions at Amazon when AWS was just starting was like, hey, this is gonna be an internal service, right? So that, so that internal teams could could have variable infrastructure here and everything. And it was Bezos who said, you have to have external customers because external customers are always more demanding than internal customers are, right? And so it has so many benefits kind of having that platform strategy, turning capabilities inside out, having external cu customers forces you Aid, as you said, like it gives you the ability to, to leverage some of that fixed cost. But I think as importantly, it, it's going to give you dissatisfied external cu customers who are going to force you to create a truly world-class capability that benefits your core business too. You said something so, well, a lot great in there, but one that really hit me, John, C turn capabilities inside out. And as we do that, we drive revenue. And of course, the, you know, I've always thought this term internal customer is bullshit, right? I, I don't use it and I don't think people should use it. And particularly, you know, as a former CMO, it's like, ah, you know, sales is our customer and engineering is our customer. No, they're not our fucking customer. We work together. Fuck that. It's just a dumb thinking. However, when you take a capability that's somewhat customized uh, and you to your point, you turn it inside out and now it's used both. 
your inside capability in that regard, let's take AWS as a simple example, the Amazon infrastructure is materially different, materially better, materially more scalable as a result of the fact that it runs Netflix and God knows how many others. Uh, and I, I wasn't quite as aware about the logistics business, but it sounds fascinating. And, and so is there a thought inside that says, hey, wait a minute, if we're building a custom capability for us, then maybe somebody else needs it and we should go test that out? Absolutely. I mean, that, that is just one of the handful of, of patterns of finding adjacencies that Amazon has repeated time and time again is like, hey, how could we turn this inside out and find external external customers? And the other value internally for this, and, and Bezos talks about this, I think it's his 2014 or 15 shareholder letter. He talks about platforms and everything, and he goes, he talks about that the killer feature on all of these is that they have to be self-service, right? Somebody, whether it's a, to use your favorite term, internal customer or an external customer, they shouldn't have to come talk to you in order to use your stuff, right? And it forces teams to engineer things in a completely different way, right? And, and so what it does is it helps speed up the internal organization because you don't always have to meet to discuss, well, hey, I want to launch a new product. I want to use your stuff. You don't have to do that, right? You can launch so much quicker. And so Amazon, through all of these, these two pizza team capabilities, these, these holistic services, now they can launch a new category or a new geography or a new approach. And they're just picking and choosing which components they're going to stitch together, and they don't—they don't have to meet nearly as not much. They—they they still have to meet, but they don't have to meet nearly as much in order to do that. And so the benefits just—you know—kind of keep coming at you from thinking through how would I externalize this service to a new a new market, right? And 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 the bar has to be high, right? I would need to release a competitive feature-rich, highly available, cost-competitive feature that would win in the market. You're going to build a better product than it's like, oh, yeah, I'm building something for, you know, our internal teams, right? Now, you have to be willing to take the time and and maybe there's some upfront investment that you wouldn't normally face, but the long-term re re returns are, are, are there for you. It's so interesting. I had never thought about the, it has to be self-service. And as you were talking, I was thinking, okay, so, you know, I've been an Amazon customer pretty much since the beginning. I, I sat there at the Goldman Sachs conference in the Super Ding Dong Hotel in New York when Jeff was on the IPO roadshow and everybody there knew they'd seen history happening. I'll tell you, I got shivers in the back of my neck where I don't have hair. This thing about it has to be self-service. I, I thought about this as you were talking. How many times as a customer have I had to call Amazon? I'm not positive, John, but it might be zero. It might be zero. And then even on the much more complicated, complex stuff, like, I, you know, of course, virtually every startup in Silicon Valley today, just it's, it's barely a discussion. They're on AWS. And so I talk to a lot of developers who use AWS all day, every day, and I, I think it's the vast majority of what goes on with AWS is exactly the same thing. And so that's a breakthrough mindset in of itself. And, and just a simple forcing function, right? It has to be self-service, right? Like there, there, there's no, there's no 
complexity in it. You can, but you can audit it, and it it takes well-intentioned people to go. Okay, how do I apply this as best possible in my case? But yeah, uh, Amazon is just chock full of all these little levers that emphasize the customer invention, making it simple, and that you know our 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 path is to find new markets and new customer needs. And no matter what our past is, it doesn't define us for the future. And and that's really the story I tried to capture in the Amazon way and you know make it available to others to apply into their businesses. Again, as you're talking, I'm thinking, as an, another area of Amazon I found so fascinating, which is the UX of the retail product that we're all you know, that saved the pandemic, saved us in the pandemic. A, it's not very pretty. Like I know a lot of UX designers who would not want it to look that way at all. B, unless I'm forgetting, which, you know, is possible, just a lot of scotches ago, the Amazon UX, well, has added some new functionality from a look and feel perspective and from a utility perspective has not changed that much. Now, you compare that to, by way of example, Facebook, where we used to have a Facebook feed and Facebook Messenger. Well, now we got stories and we got alerts. And like when you log on to Facebook, you don't want it's like it's some ADHD asshole that designed this thing. Like, where are you supposed to look? Right. And so it, it reminds me of that great expression. That product is so full featured, nobody uses it anymore. And so how is it that Amazon it appears to me has a strong bias towards functionality and a strong bias towards, Hey, to your point on the simplicity, which you talk a lot about in the book, if it doesn't need to be all fancy and dancing and dancing bears and flashing lights and all that crap, make it utilitarian. Who cares? Where does that come from? Well, well, it is a utilitarian design. I think the only problem with being the everything store is that it's the everything store, right? And, and But the problem is that a customer comes there typically with a need in mind. And so search and browse and discovery, I think, is something Amazon has been working at forever. They're going to continue to work at it forever. There is no one magic you know, answer or UI to help solve that. I think that's a very difficult problem. One way that they work that is that you've seen them break up more in the mobile space into more, you know, uh, micro apps, right? And so an app for a specific type of customer, Prime Video or uh, groceries or Amazon Now. And so, and so I think that the through mobile, they've been able to break the massive monolithic UI up into more customer targeted use cases and everything. But I, 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 you know, I think the site is there for transactions, right? And they now have a tremendous equity with their customers that good or bad customers know how to get their job done that they're there to do. And that works for Amazon. And, and anytime I'm no UI expert, but, but I get asked a lot to, to comment on specific things. And, and, and the, and the, and first and the, really the only value added thing I do is like, well, how does Amazon do that? Right. And, and, and it's like, you're not going to go wrong, whether you agree with the technique or, 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 or not 70% of all us households are trained 
on that UI. So if you do something that works in a similar way, perhaps a lot of your customers are gonna recognize that and know what to do next relative to that, right? Um, and so that I'm specifically thinking about like the checkout process uh, when, I'm, when I'm talking about that. So, so um, I don't know if there's any magic there. I think UI evolution is a, is a really hard thing to do when you have an installed base like this. And I think they continue to make some important tweaks along the way. The, the, the things I love are the, some of the logistics things that they do that just keep making it easier, right? How many companies would continue to innovate to make the returns process easier and easier for customers, right? N nobody, nobody would naturally do that except Amazon, right? Amazon continues to invent new ways for customers to return products because their long-term, it was a bet early on, now they know it, is that if customers know that it's easier to return something, guess what? I'll just end up buying more stuff over time. So you have to look at the customer lifetime value versus the transactional value. Most companies are engineered around item profitability metrics, not customer lifetime value metrics. And so Amazon is able to invest in all these little ways of making returns easier. And, and I think it's just stunning how the, you know, they put the customer first, they invest today's dollars on the bet of future profitability. That's an equation that, that um, they get rewarded for. And I think mo more companies need to have that customer lifetime value mentality to them versus, you know, order optimization mindset. Absolutely. And I think you're so right on the returns because it, it's a major hesitation for people, particularly buying online, particularly buying things that don't necessarily lend themselves. You know, think about clothing as an example, right? And there are absolutely people who buy two different sizes of the same thing because they're not sure if they're a medium or a large or whatever. And and, uh, and then they, they try them on and they like the one and they send the other one back. And the fact that that's all cool and Fonzie that means Amazon gets more customers and more revenue. And yeah, nobody has really um, thought that piece through. Or, or that I can go drop it off at a Whole Foods store. I can go drop it off at a UPS store. I can go drop it off at an Amazon bookstore. I can drop it off at a Kohl's. I can drop it off at an Amazon lockers. Uh, I can have somebody pick it up at my house. Like these are all different paths and options for customers now. And if any other CEO had been running Amazon, they would have said, hey, let's not make returns quite that easy, you know, and everything, right? Like that's, that's what you would have learned in business school was put a little friction in returns. Well, a great example is how does the airline treat you when you want to make a change? Or I think I think I read that the best perk out of the pandemic is going away. The the best the best perk. Yeah, I'm always trying to find a silver lining and things, right? And and I thought one of the best things was they they canceled right. change fees, right? Um, and I recently read that I think most airlines are going back to their pre-pandemic change fee policies uh, and everything. Amazon wouldn't run an airline that way. Well, and it's just proof that most of the airlines are run by assholes with spreadsheets as opposed to a visionary entrepreneur. Uh, who gives a shit about customer service in a very deep way. <laughs> now, John, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? 
Well, um, you know, uh, book launches uh, June 8th. It's called The Amazon Way, Amazon's 14 Leadership Principles. You can find me on LinkedIn. My blog is theamazonway.com. And um, again, complaining is not a strategy. I'm all about kind of helping companies and leaders figure out mechanisms, approaches to evolve leadership so that we compete and innovate better. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. And we will have links in the show notes to all of your contact info and how people can... I bet they can buy the book on Amazon, can't they, John? <laughs> More or less exclusively, yeah. But it, it paperback, Kindle, and Audible version, and so you can get it in whatever flavor you like your your content in. All right, John. Well, I really appreciate you coming back. I think you're a really inspiring guy. I think you're doing great work in the world, and you're teaching us a lot, and I can't thank you enough. Well, Christopher, I appreciate your work and your effort. I was telling you before the the show that I was using the – uh, category creation scorecard with a client that I'm working on. And, um, you know, people need to be willing to pick up some new tricks and that applies to all of us. And so I appreciate some of the, the, the frameworks and tools that you've, you've brought to us. That's very kind of you to say, John, and you're always welcome back. I really, uh, you have a fantastic mind and, uh, I appreciate your work. Thank you so much. Stay legendary, my friend. Right on. Well, there he is, the legendary John Rossman. Check out his new book, The Amazon Way. I think it's a spectacular read, and uh, I enjoyed it very much myself. And I'm proud to provide John an endorsement for his book because I believe in his work and these ideas. Also, I want to encourage you to go to Lockhead.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our new newsletter, Category Pirates, the authority on category design. Now... From startups to large enterprises, NetSuite by Oracle has now become the number one cloud ERP business software solution. NetSuite will scale with you as your business evolves from a, an idea all the way through an IPO and beyond. With NetSuite, you can start small and grow big and have tremendous flexibility. If we've learned one thing of late, we've learned the flexible, adaptable businesses win. And NetSuite provides you with a full suite of capabilities from enterprise resource planning to customer relationship management, analytics, omni-channel commerce, HR, and more. No more QuickBooks, no more spreadsheet kung fu. NetSuite is a complete business system in the cloud. Check out netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And as you know, legendary businesses are digital businesses. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. A new approach to making the right things happen at the right time to produce the right outcome with data. And when Splunk says everything, they mean it. Splunk empowers you to connect any piece of data to any other piece of data and wrap business rules around that data, regardless of what device created it, whether it was data in motion or data at rest, and regardless of where or how your data is stored. Splunk's data to everything platform empowers you to do everything and anything with your data. Visit splunk.com slash D2E today. That's S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D, the number two, the letter E. All right. We would like to thank my buddy, the legendary John Rossman. 
His new updated book is out. It's called The Amazon Way. Check it out wherever you get legendary books. And, of course, <laughs> it's on Amazon.com. My friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. The number one, LifeFullyLived.org. Also, um, visit Lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates if you want to make something different happen in the world. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's leading distant assistant. If you want an assistant who takes great care of you but is nowhere near you, visit Bottleneck.online today. My friends at Play Bigger Advisors are the legends in category design advising. And they wrote the book with me. (laughs) So check out playbigger.com if you want to figure out how to design and dominate your market category. That's playbigger.com. And if you're in Australia, my friends at Rapid Media do legendary marketing and communications. Check out rapidmedia.com.au today. That's rapidmedia.com.au. And if you want to make a difference for underserved kids here in Northern California in the Santa Cruz area, check out dropincoalition.org today. You see, the Drop-In Coalition is uh, teaching underserved kids the power of surfing and STEAM, as in science, technology, engineering, art, and math at the same time. And the work we do is stunning. Check out dropincoalition.org today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And we would love you just a little bit extra if you shared the shit out of it. 80% of our listeners came as a result of a friend or colleague or family member recommending this oddcast. And we love it when you do that. So thank you. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution and build lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. Clearly, this oddcast goes way better with uh, libations. Don't forget, Joan Jett was right. Tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Uh, remember, there's no stopping the Cretans from hopping. Listen to Blue Rodeo, teach the Amazon way. And uh, thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Greg Clark, former CEO of Symantec. Sorry, Greg, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Uh, Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.